Are you are you sitting comfortably? Some of you are. <laughs> the plan is to spend uh, the next the next uh, yeah Sundays really up till Christmas in the Book of Revelation. Um, we've never really preached through our namesake. We've never preached through this book once. We a few years ago we did um, we did a series on the church, and we did Revelations chapters two and three, which records the seven letters to the churches. Um, as a result, we won't be going through chapters two and three in this series. We'll do chapter one today and next week, and then chapter four the week after, all the way through to the end. So that's the plan there. Uh, now, um, now Revelation, as a book in the Bible. Um, can create a lot of difficulties. You're probably aware of that. Um, Revelation is the only New Testament letter or book that John Calvin didn't write a commentary on. So John Calvin was a very, very famous commentator who, who felt fairly confident finding his way around the Bible. Um, we don't know why, but uh, I don't, I don't know why. But he didn't write a commentary on Revelation. Maybe when you read it, you would understand why. Um, there are two main wrong approaches to the book of Revelation. Two ways you can approach it, and it will go wrong. Okay? First is, don't approach it. Okay? That one always goes wrong, because you're missing out on some major blessings that are in this book for us from God. Okay? So that's, that's not the approach, leaving it alone. Uh, the second approach, it always goes wrong, is it's the only book you ever read. It's the only book you ever read and you create fantastic ideas and theories out of, out of your study that are generally, most of the time, bonkers. Uh, and then try and make everyone else believe what you believe. That, don't do that with Revelation either, okay? Don't avoid it and don't only read that and start saying things like, well, it's obvious. It's not obvious. <laughs> it's not obvious. There's a lot of stuff in here that isn't obvious. So um, we need to really handle it with humility and care. And, um, uh, and, and not just have a, uh, an attitude that's dismissive to people who interpret certain elements of it differently. There are certain elements that are open to interpretation whilst holding very clearly and strongly onto the basics of the gospel. So it's really important that we, we don't approach it either of those two wrong ways. I'm going to be asking six questions today. I'm going to be asking and trying to answer them. I'm going to ask, what is Revelation? Who wrote it and when? How should we read it? How should we interpret it or understand it? What about these bits? And um, then finally, who gets centre stage or what gets centre stage? They're the six questions I'm going to be asking. And um, now I'm going to read chapter one. It's going to uh, come up here on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. If you do, it's always good to, it's always good to follow it in your own Bible. And it's easy to find because it's the last book in the whole Bible. So you won't be rustling around for ages. So um, Revelation chapter one. Um, are we good to go? Thanks, Nat. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength and when I saw him I fell at his face as though I fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not I am the first and the last and the living one I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, thank you for this scripture. Um, it's an awesome thing to be able to read it aloud, hear it, and then work out what it means to keep it. And I pray you'd help us as a church. Lord, you say, blessed are those. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. Help us, Lord. Help us to engage our whole beings in this. Keep us from superficial things, Lord. Things that, things that are empty and vain and worthless and that will fade away. This would be a people fixed on the eternal things, we pray, through this series and even starting today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, 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 amen. Okay. Uh, question number one, what is revelation? What is, what is it? Well, uh, the Greek word is apocalypsis, which we get our word apocalypse from, and it all sounds very scary, um, but it really just means revealing or disclosure, something has been revealed. This is the revealing, which is why we use the word revelation. So it's quite straightforward there. Um, something's being shown. What's being shown is probably a really good question. So a few things you could say. What's being shown? Firstly, heavenly realities. It's like someone pulls the curtain back and you suddenly see, however you want to describe it, behind the scenes or parallel to seen reality, you suddenly see this unseen spiritual realities that is being played out in parallel with our everyday life. So it's like we, we, we have most of our time to do with that which we see and touch and smell and hear, etc., etc. Suddenly you are let in on the unseen realm. What is going on behind the scenes? Uh, and it's, it's staggering. So it's like someone's pulled back the curtain. You think, oh, right. It's just a sense of the grandeur of what God is doing and what God is working out his purposes in history. So firstly, it's just... A revealing of heavenly reality. 
Secondly, it's revealing there's this phrase, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see it in verse 2. That's how it describes what's going on here. This, this revelation which has been given um, to his servants, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all that he saw. He describes what he sees as, the, as a revealing of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In verse 9, it's interesting, he uses the same phrase. We're told that he's on the Isle of Patmos, where he's in exile. And, um, and he says he's there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It's a beautiful little phrase. It's like, wow, what, 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 is it, what is it referring to? Well, it's quite an interesting thing. John is basically saying the reason I'm here on this island in exile is the same, is the same message, it's the same thing that was revealed to me freshly through this revelation. It's not something new for John. It's just like a fresh vision of what he knows to be true, which is the word of God, Jesus and, test, and, and the testimony of Jesus, testifying to this mighty message of God that, is, that climaxes in Jesus. That's, that's really what John's life is about, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, being faithful to what God has spoken finally in Jesus, that God's final word, who God is and what he's about, is seen in Christ, and John's faithful witness of that, because of that, he's in exile. And then he has this vision, and what is, what is unveiled and revealed in multi-technicolor glory is The word of God, what God has done finally in Jesus, and the testimony of that, the faithful testimony of it. It's a a wonderful picture, actually, if you take Revelation as a prophecy of what prophecy should be like. Prophecy really just confirms what God has done in Jesus. Even something as amazing as Revelation, it's just like a fresh fresh, um, display of the gospel. And that's what prophecy is. Prophecy isn't a new ideas fundamentally. Just new, I've got so I've got a new got a new thing from God. Fundamentally, that's not what prophecy is. Prophecy fundamentally isn't just some nice self help thoughts, nice ideas. I've got words from the Lord. We need to um, we need to love ourselves. You know, no, no. Prophecy is the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus. It's always it always leads to the same place. That, that true prophecy is the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Says in the book of Revelation. So if it goes to, if it gets to Jesus, it's good. Um, if it gets you anywhere else, you have to you have to ask some questions about it because Jesus is God's final word. Amen. So it's that. And then I also I would say this that absolutely what this revelation is it's a revelation of God's victory through Jesus and what that means for His creation, for His enemies, and for His church. You see, it's, the, the letter is written to churches that are under severe pressure. Life is not easy for them. You read through chapters 2 and 3, read through chapters 2 and 3 in the next couple of weeks. You see what they're facing. They're facing trouble within, trouble without. Some of them are just about to be thrown into prison for their faith. Others have been led astray in their ideas by people on the inside that have sneaked in. They're under incredible pressure. All churches, I think except one, get some rebukes from Jesus. They're not doing so great. And so this revelation, it paints a picture of God's amazing victory in Jesus and what it means for all of creation, what it means for God's enemies, that they will be finally judged, and what it means for his church. Safety. Victory. So that's really what Revelation is. And this is going to be the longest sermon you've ever heard. Um, I'm just realising this. I've got there's 27 things that chapter 1 says about Jesus. And that's my last point. Um, but I'm not doing all 27, so don't worry. Who wrote it and when? Well, people always argue about this, that and the other. But there's nothing that's come along that is particularly convincing other than what has been believed right from kind of early, early church history is that it was written by John. 
um, the apostle, um, the brother of James, you know, often in the Gospels, there was Peter, James and John, that John, that it was written by him. And uh, church history again teaches that John uh, uh, relocated from Jerusalem to Asia, most likely Ephesus. And so the fact he's writing to the churches in Asia makes perfect sense. So John wrote it. And again, there's, 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 there's debate over when it was written. But again, most people would say it was written during the reign of the emperor um, Domitian, who reigned between AD 81 and AD 96. So John probably would have been in his 80s when he had this experience. John was the only one of the 12 um, original disciples um, that was not martyred according to, her, to church history. Um, as tradition goes, he was thrown into a vat of bo- boiling oil and still came out alive. Um, so they exiled him to Patmos instead to work in the mines as a slave. Um, so that's, that was, that's the way it goes if you're a disciple. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> nervous laugh. Uh, lots of silence. But there it is. Um, so who wrote it and when? There you go. That's an easy one, quick one. Um, quick one uh, to get through there. Uh, I will just... Ah, uh, oh, I forgot. Oh, no. I had a wonderful, some wonderful quotes in the commentary I was going to read. Um, but I'm not going to do that now because my commentary is at home. How annoying is that? I'll, I'll try to um, get the quotes out there. Beautiful, beautiful quotes. Just to recommend a good commentary on Revelation, one that's manageable and brilliantly written, is one in the BST series by Michael Wilcock. It's excellent. I'll be honest with you, my assessment of the BST series is they're a bit hit and miss. Um, this one by Michael Wilcock is brilliant, really well written, very gripping, and, um, and I think theologically great. So, as who wrote it and when, how should we read it? Right. Now, we won't do this stuff every week. I'm just trying to help you get to grips with Revelation. What you've got to realize is in the Bible, it's a load of books, not just one, and they cover lots of different literary genres. So you've got poetry, you've got wisdom, um, you've got prophetic literature, you've got narrative, you've got all these different ones. So you've got to know, well, what is Revelation in terms of knowing how to read it? It's very important that you um, understand that. Um, Revelation is a prophetic apocalyptic book. That's the kind of genre it is. They had this kind of genre around then. And what it means is that it's mostly pictures and very symbolic. So any of you here pictorial learners, any of you here like to learn through pictures rather than words, you're going to have a great time in Revelation. Okay? Just image after image after image after image. And lots and lots of symbols. And so in terms of understanding the symbols, we are not without a compass. Um, the reality is, is that many of the images and symbols are borrowed from certain Old Testament books. Particularly Daniel, Zechariah, uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah. And so you can begin to, if you understand those books and the scholars into all this stuff, they, they help us to understand what the symbols mean. So we're not without a compass. That's the most reliable place to understand. John was borrowing a lot of the time in his vision and his understanding of the Old Testament coming together. So um, it's important that you realize that you realize that the Old Testament helps us greatly understand the book of Revelation. So um, finally, how should we read it? Um, well, the aim is that it's supposed to be for a blessing, not for confusion or arguments. Okay? It's God's given it to us for, for a blessing. Not to leave us thinking, uh, what was that? But, okay, so it's why we're going to preach through it and try and just help bring clarity where there might be confusion. But it's not for arguments. So if any of you here and you're kind of on that, you're on that agenda, you want to start cornering me after the sermon about you know, what do I make about, what do I think of the demonic frog? You know, it's not happening. Okay, and you've got 101 reasons why it represents the fourth pope. I mean, you can have, you can just 
we're not having that conversation. So just to let you know, if there's anyone here that's heard we're preaching Revelation, so you turned up because that's how you roll. That's not how we roll. Okay, um, so that's how we read it. Uh, how should we understand it? How should we understand the book of Revelation? <laughs> Sorry, Davina's giggling. Um, Firstly, we should understand that it's for the whole church. Um, the idea that it was written to the seven churches, it was very relevant for those seven churches, but actually there were, by this point in history, ten churches that have been established in Asia. And so the fact that it's written to seven and, and not ten is probably speaking more of the symbolic idea of the number seven, which means complete, perfect, full number. And so it's, and so it's definitely written to these churches, and in chapter two and chapter three, each church gets its own special message, which are relevant for them there and then. But um, it's definitely written for the church. So it's for all of us who are God's people and would count ourselves followers of Christ. Now, there are four main ways you can understand this book. Okay, There are four main approaches to this book. There's lots of sub-approaches in those four approaches, but there are four main approaches. So I'm going to go through what they are quickly and explain why we're going to choose the one we're going to choose. You doing all right? Okay, cool. Um, the first approach would say that it's referring to the, the, it's, the whole book is referring to events pretty much in John's lifetime only. And so, for example, some of them would see the fall of Babylon right near the end as the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, others would see it as the fall of the Roman Empire, which definitely happened after John's death. But they would be still sort of lumping it in saying, no, the whole thing is kind of talking about what's gone by, what's in the past there. Um, uh, that's the first approach. The whole thing is just talking about stuff that's, that's, that's happened already. The, other, the second one is probably the opposite extreme of that, saying, no, 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 no. The events that happen in this book are so cataclysmic and kind of earth-shattering. We've seen nothing of the like. Um, it's all in the future. So this book's entirely about the future. None of this stuff has started to happen yet. After the letters to the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3, the rest of it is what is to come. It's the second approach. Um, the third, we're not going for either of those approaches um, because if you go for the first approach, it's, it's, it's all in the past. That really throws big questions on how this letter is for the church for all time. Um, and basically, you know, the, the relevance. And, you know, I think the fact that... Um, the climax of the book is definitely referring to um, you know, keeping what is written in here and the imminent return of Christ. I think you have to absolutely believe that this book was written for all those who will benefit from it until Christ returns. The reason why we don't just think that it is um, simply uh, for the future, everything's just kind of um, stacked that way, is because then it raises questions for the relevance for the whole church from the time of John up to when those things start happening. Um, so that's, that's one that doesn't work so well. Then you've got two others who have some similarities, but they're not the same uh, at all. They might sound similar initially. The first is, is that it's a chronological um, idea from basically when, when John wrote it, when John received the revelation, right through to when Jesus comes again. Basically, it's, it's, like a, it's a chronological thing. It tracks how things are going to go. Um, the, other, uh, the, other one, the other approach says, no, it's not that. What we believe is this, is that um, chapters 2 and 3 are talking about when John was around, and then between chapter 4 on right through to the point where Jesus returns, around chapter 19, chapter 20, between there and there, this is just talk, really reflecting on um, principles of God working out his purposes, judgment, etc., suffering, hardship, victory, gospel. Those principles are worked out in every age. But it's not a chronological record of how it's going to happen and when. It's just it's, it, the book is not written like that. But it's given us instead a sense of 
the operation of God in his creation for his people and against his enemies in the whole period from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. We're going for that one. The reason why we're not going for the chronological one is that the pitfalls you tend to fall into when you do that is that every generation reads them right in the centre of the thing or they start saying, oh, oh, look, oh, this must be Islamic State or oh, this. And depending on where you live and when you live, you're constantly saying, it's there, no, we're there, no, we're there. And basically it's more a reflection of the fact that we tend to just be very, very aware of our generation when we're alive in it. Um, I'm sure if you had this approach, you know, during World War II and Hitler rose up, it's the beast, you know, you, it's, prob- it's probably what you, would, what you would be doing. But with the fourth approach, which is what we're going for, you can definitely look at Hitler and others like it and say they definitely represent this Antichrist idea. So we're going to go for that approach in how we, uh, in how we deal with Revelation. Uh, if you want to talk about that in more detail, we're really happy to, but obviously now's not the time to be doing that. Okay. Point five of six. What about, <laughs> what about these bits? What about these bits? There's a few bits that are just a little bit... How, what do we make of that? Um, and uh, the first one you will find in uh, chapter one. It's just quite, it's quite a surprise. You think, oh, why is he doing that? If you look in chapter one, verse four, um, grace to you and peace... Yes. From him who is and who was and who is to come... And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, that's what you call a Trinitarian welcome. You've got involved in it, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But what's unusual about it? Other than the seven spirits. We'll do that in a moment. But what, what, what else is unusual about that Trinitarian greeting? Can you see it? Right, so the order is unusual, Father, Spirit, Son, and so it raises the question, what, why would they do that? Now, I probably wouldn't even have noticed <laughs> if I was just reading it, or if I did, I would have gone, oh, that's funny, and read on. But um, in studying to prepare for a sermon, you read a bit more deeper. And so, and I found something, actually, that I thought was uh, pretty, um, pretty wonderful here. Uh, is, um, let me show you this slide here of the old tabernacle, Moses' old tabernacle. Now, this is when the Israelites were in the wilderness, and they had their tabernacle where they would meet with God, and the priests would do the offerings. What you would find is, is, is you had this idea. You had the Holy of Holies up there, and in the Holy of Holies, there would be um, the, ark, the ark, which represented the throne of God or the Father, if you like, and then as you came out and then into the holy place, you had the um, seven-pronged, um, I'm sure there's a more spiritual name for it, but a seven-pronged uh, candlestick, which represented the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then as you came out of there into the courtyard, you had the altar of sacrifice, um, there, which obviously where you would sacrifice the animals, representing uh, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, you know, the Son. And so actually when you see the temple, the order that you have there actually is Father, Spirit, Son. Now, what you've got in the book of Revelation is you've got um, a very clear, powerful revelation of, um, of the, the true tabernacle, if you like. See, we're told in Hebrews that when Moses built the tabernacle, he was told that it was a copy, the earth, he was a copy of the heavenly tabernacle, in the sense that what they built just reflected a spiritual reality. And so what you have in the book of Revelation is the, the true tabernacle, the presence of God, um, uh, so God's heavenly dwelling communicating to his earthly dwelling, the church. And the reason why the, the Trinity is probably presented in this order is because it's a very strong sense of wanting to bring back to mind that sense of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. This is a communication from God's heavenly dwelling to his earthly dwelling. And that's why that's like that, which I thought was quite beautiful and quite wonderful there. And um, 
The other thing is the seven spirits. Hold on a minute. We, we, we were struggling enough with the Trinity. Now, we've, now, now, now the Holy Spirit, we've got seven spirits. What's going on here? Okay, so I've just got to help you with some little things, um, little things just to help you get your head around this. There's a rich biblical history concerning the number seven and the Holy Spirit. So even in the next couple of chapters of this book, I'll just read you, there's two other references in chapter four, verse five. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And then chapter 5, verse 6, it says this, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So we've got seven torches before the throne. We've got a lamb of God with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And then we've got the seven spirits in chapter 1. You're thinking, man alive, what, what is going on here? Then in Isaiah chapter 11, we've got this uh, unusual passage. It's talking about Jesus, prophesying Jesus um, ultimately. And it describes him in this way. Chapter 11, Isaiah 11 verse 2 or verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And count, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You've got this sevenfold ministry of the spirit, if you like, a sevenfold way of describing the work of the one Holy Spirit. And then in the book of Zechariah, which is, if anyone read Zechariah recently? You need to read Zechariah. Zechariah is a great read. And um, it will keep you it will keep you gripped and sometimes you will scratch your head. Uh, it says this in Zechariah. He doesn't like my preaching, does he? It won't be this tough the next few weeks. Oh. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it. With seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there's two olive trees by it, one on the left Right at the bowl, the other on the left. And I said to the angel, I don't blame him, what are these? <laughs> it's great. What are these, my Lord? And, uh, and then later when the angel says, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So what, 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 I'm just trying to show you that this isn't just totally a random thing. There's a, there's a strand throughout the Bible on this. So whether you're talking about the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, Counsel, wisdom, might, understanding, fear of the Lord, and one other. Um, when you're talking like that, or whether, you, or whether you refer to the Holy Spirit as the sevenfold Spirit of God, or the seven spirits of God, or the septiform Spirit of God, at the end of the day, here is the conclusion that the Spirit, being the third person of the Trinity, is at various times represented through the number seven, which refers in prophetic language to completion and perfection. The seven eyes speak of the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-searching nature of God. So when you're dealing with the one God who exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a holy community of passionate love for one another, we ought to get used to dealing with singularity and plurality that coexist. There's something of the Spirit that is represented by the number seven that helps us understand the full, complete, um, the fullness of the work and the knowledge of the Spirit of God. So the seven spirits of God for the seven churches also speaks of the fullness of God for the fullness of the church. Hallelujah. The fullness of God is given to the whole church. Amen? Wow. We'll have some of that. Okay. 
Now let's get into the final question of the sermon. What is the centerpiece of the book? Um, the centerpiece of the book is Jesus. Always Jesus. Always, always Jesus. We have this amazing, incredible moment where John sees him. Now bear in mind, this is really important, really important. It seems that John, out of the whole of the 12 disciples, had a special relationship with Jesus. We know that there were probably about 70 or so that went out from Jesus' preachers. Then there was an inner circle of 12 that he called his apostles. Then there were three, Peter, James and John, that seemed to have a special even more close relationship. He took them up on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we read at the start of the service. They were with him. He just took them with him when he raised the young daughter from the dead. And then it seems that within that, there was this particularly close connection with John. We're told that John leaned back onto the, onto the chest of Jesus, onto the bosom of Jesus during the Last Supper and asked him, asked him I think it was when he asked him, who's going to betray you, Lord? But that's the intimacy. He's that intimate with Jesus. The connection is close. Whether there was just a, obviously Jesus being fully man, maybe there was just a, a, even a connection of personalities, a friendship. But that, this is the guy, John. And when John sees Jesus, he falls at his feet like a dead man. You think, oh. So if John knew Jesus like that, and when he sees a vision of the glorified Jesus, it has that effect on him. Where does that leave me? <laughs> Where does it leave you? Where does it leave us? We've got to get this. And my, my hope, and I guess my prayer will be that through this series, we, we get a sense of the glory of Christ. Because it's what we need more than anything, I think, to be honest with you. I don't think it's something that you want to avoid. I think actually, no, it's something that we need desperately. And um, I want to just, what I'm going to do, I'm going to just literally just go through, for the last bit of the sermon, I'm just going to go through a few of these things. Just literally the phrase used, just unpack it very quickly. Some things about Jesus. Firstly, we're told that it's his revelation. In verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that can be taken different ways. It probably means, it's probably not referring to the fact that it's about him, but that the Father gave it to him. It's a beautiful picture. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. It's a beautiful idea. This book is Jesus' gift to the church. It's the Father gave it to Jesus. And Jesus, through his angel, anyway, through his angel, gave it to John to give to the church. It's Jesus' gift to us. He wants you to be gripped by it. He wants your heart to be stirred by it. He wants your mind to be renewed by it. He wants your life to be changed by it. Okay? Because it's his gift to you. Okay? So if someone of that worth gives you a gift, take it seriously. Because he knows you. He knows what you need. So it's his gift. The second way he's described here, Jesus is described as the faithful witness. That word is where we get our word martyr. It's the same, it's the Greek word, martyrio. So Jesus is the faithful witness. Jesus is the one. If you're, if you're, you're in a position and you think, oh, I want to be faithful, show me how to do it, look at Jesus. Because the whole grounds of any faithfulness you ever show to God is based on his faithfulness seen perfectly in Jesus. Just utterly faithful to the purposes of God. It's amazing. It is amazing. You know, we've got to get it. We've really got to get it. He is our great high priest. Why? Because he's able to sympathize. Why? Because he was tempted in every way that we are. Right? He knows to what it is to be in the fires of temptation. And he's faithful. And he faithfully witnesses witness to the purposes of God. He faithfully witnesses to the message of the kingdom. He is faithful in every way. We must never be, um, we must always be in wonder 
of that. He was entrusted with the most incredible mission. It all hangs on you, Jesus. It all, I mean, you know, some of you think you've got responsibility. Salvation of the whole of creation. It all hangs on you, Jesus. I mean, he lived with that. If that was me, I'd want, I'd want, I'd, I'd just want to be alone. Just to sort of, just, just so that I didn't do anything crazy or, do you know what I mean? So that I wasn't unloving to someone by mistake and I've blown it. I'm no longer the lamb without blemish. You know, Jesus just pours, he, he does have time with the Father. You bet he does. But he pours himself out for people. He's able to call people and include people and have compassion. But he's carrying that. He's carrying that and he's able to give and give and give. And his cousin, John the Baptist, is beheaded. And he just goes off for some time. And when he arrives where he was going for some time, the crowds are there like sheep without a shepherd. And instead of, instead of blowing up on them, you know, you lot, it's my time. You know, just teaches them. Faithful witness. Faithful in every way. Not just in what he brought, but in how, who he was. The firstborn of the dead. I mean, these are mighty titles. You know, humanity has been resurrected in Christ, right? It was all over. But now humanity is no longer lost. In Christ, it's got a brand new head and it has a brand new hope. Right? And he is the firstborn from among the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Because he's been raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. I mean, man, this is, wow, this is Jesus. He's, he's not just the, the, the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. That mighty harvest of, 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 of those who have died and will die, whom God plans to raise up to live with him forever in resurrection glory, the first one's happened, and it's Jesus. And which means he is absolutely preeminent in every way. He's the new head of the new humanity. He ushers in the new order. Um, there's no one or nothing other than him that will usher in the new age. Anything that promises to usher in a new age for humanity, whatever it might be, whether it's scientific, technical, spiritual, if it's not rooted and founded in him, it's not true. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Fourth, he's the ruler of the kings on earth. He is in charge. Jesus is absolutely in charge in every way. God has established his king on his holy hill and his name is Jesus. And God has promised in the nations of the world, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, it belongs to him. Jesus reigns. He is over every ruler you might name. He is over Barack Obama. He is over Vladimir Putin. He's over every G8 leader, the leader of the United Nations, the leader of Islamic State. He has absolute authority over them all. Absolute authority over them all. In his wisdom, he permits and allows things that we don't always understand or realize there's a schedule. There's a great master plan. We'll see some of that as we work through the book. But it, the Bible is clear. He's the ruler of the kings of earth. Fifthly, he loves us. Ah, what? What? This one? If he had a few angels that loved us because they felt sorry for us, I'd be like, yeah, okay. I get that. Jesus is busy ruling over the kings of the earth, being the firstborn from among the dead and all that stuff. You know, and there's a few other guys that kind of, what about those guys? No, he loves us. That we have, he has room in his heart for us. That he's just as compassionate and just as concerned for the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable as he was when he walked the earth. That he hasn't changed. That that's, he carries that. He carries, that's why he can carry that kind of authority. Because he has that kind of compassion. 
That's why he can carry it. And that's why he can carry it. And you don't have to be scared in a kind of a, in a, in a slavish way. That you don't have to kind of fear and, and try to run from the authority because of his humility and because of his compassion. He's actually voluntarily went to the depths lower, darker than any of us will ever go in order to bring us out of that. And this is who he is. He loves us. That's why we sing of his love. But it's a mighty love. It's not a, it's not what of course he does. No! Not of course he does. He loves us. That's incredible. Why would he love us? Why would he love us? What is there? But he does. He loves us. And he's freed us from our sins by his blood. Why? Because he loves us. And he's looked at us in our pitiable state. Slaves to sin. Slaves to lusts that destroy our souls. Slaves to appetites that we don't know how to get free from the grip of. Slaves to fears that dominate our lives. And he's come and through his blood he's freed us from the domination of them. And he said, the door's open, you can walk out of the cell. How? Because I shed my blood for you. I've freed you. Wow. It's Jesus. Seventh, he's made us a kingdom. He has made us into a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So now you're not just loved and beloved and forgiven. No, no, now he's made you into a kingdom of priests. Christians, you're now your priests. Which means, what does a priest do? A priest represents the people before God. So now we get to be in the presence of God and pray for one another. Pray for those who don't know him yet. Pray for the nations. We carry that into the presence of God. And we have authority to seek him and pray for these things. Why? Because he's made us a kingdom of priests. It's what we do. It's who we are. We have a duty, we have priestly duties before God. And we haven't got to go and wash here and do this and wear these special clothes and make sure this right, make sure the robe's clean. No, we come as we are. Why? Because we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. There's a beautiful simplicity to it, but we take our responsibilities seriously. I'm a priest. So I can represent people before God and God will listen to my prayers. Why? Because I'm in Christ. And I pray in the name of Jesus and my prayers have great weight and authority and carry great favour in God's heart. Why? Because I'm praying in the name of Jesus. And God always loves to hear that name of Jesus. Priests, that's who we are now. Kingdom of prayer. What privileges we have. And this is glory and dominion are his forever. Oh yes. Glory and dominion are his forever. God has established the king forever. He will rule and reign in this beautiful way forever. And there will be an age that comes when he continues to reign in this way, but his reign will be perfectly realized as all his enemies are dealt with. And there will be no more of all the stuff that we are familiar with. Tears, sadness, dying, sickness, all those things will be gone. Glory and dominion are his forever. Ninthly, we're going to do 12, then we're done. He's coming with the clouds. He's coming with the clouds. This is a reference to two, there's two elements here. There's the Daniel 7 prophecy. If you read Daniel 7, it talks about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and he comes before the Ancient of Days who represents the Father and the Father who is the Father and the Father establishes, gives him dominion forever. You see that in Daniel 7. He's coming with the clouds. But also when he ascended back into heaven in the book of Acts and the apostles were just looking, where's he gone? And uh, I think it was one or two, I can't remember. That men in white said, why are you looking up there in the same way that he went? He's going to come again going to come on the clouds of heaven it's how jesus the phrase he used to describe his glorious return he's coming again he's returning um and that's going to when he returns this age will end and the next age begins exciting eh? 10 every eye will see him 
Every eye will see him. So Jesus said, just like the lightning strikes from the east to the west, so shall the return of the Son of Man be. So if you ever hear anyone, any crackpot living in the desert who says they're the Messiah, don't feel under any pressure to go and follow them. Okay? Or any, anyone who says they're this or they're that, some little thing or some little thing. No. When Jesus comes, everyone will know. The Bible uses words like, you know, the, the, the sky will be rolled up like a garment. And there'll be a trumpet blast that everyone will hear. You're going to know about it. Okay? So don't worry that you've missed it. Don't worry. No. Okay? We will all know. We will all see him. Number 11. This is an interesting one. So he's coming on the clouds. And then we are told that the, those who... Sorry, where are we? Uh, everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn. This is interesting. In our desperately positive age, we love to paint everything with a rosy hue. The day of Christ's return will be a day of extremes. Some live for it, others will dread it. Because everything they've spent their whole life telling themselves isn't true, even though deep, deep down, They've had to suppress what they know to be true, that there is a God who is powerful and eternal. They've spent their whole life creating arguments as to why it's not true and hiding behind smoke screens of clever ideas and thoughts. Suddenly they will realise and they will see and they know it's too late. So there will be great mourning and great wailing. The Bible describes it as even the great ones of the earth will call on the rocks to fall on them. They don't want to face the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus. Okay? So there's a fearful element to this. It's not jolly. It's glorious. But it's not jolly. It's not, it's not um, cool. Or it's awesome. And it's actually quite a good idea to reserve certain words in your own vocabulary for certain things like this. It's awesome. And I was saying that word because about I think about 20 or 19 or 20 years ago, I resolved I will only use that word to describe the Lord. So when I say it, it's like, oh, I haven't said that for a while. It's lovely. It's awesome. This is what this is. This is what this is. John, who's a very close friend of Jesus, has a vision of him and falls at his feet like a dead man. What will happen to Jesus' enemies? What will happen to those who have refused to bow the knee? It's terrifying. And God is absolutely vindicated in it because creation is his. And he's not left, never left himself without a witness and constantly called people back to him to enjoy his love. But there will come a day where God says to people, okay, your will be done. And then finally... find a very interesting thing Jesus said John says I John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus there's three things that are in Jesus kingdom that's you know firstly tribulation kingdom and patient endurance it's an amazing thing so tribulation means pressure in Jesus there's pressure okay in following Jesus there is pressure there is fiery trials there are difficulties, and it's, it can, it, 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 God will squeeze you. God will, why? Because he's so interested in you. He wants to get all the impurities out so that you will be like gold refined in the fire. But that means going through the heat. 
and it's real and it's painful and it's scary and it's great. <laughs> okay? It's all those things. And it's, it's his commitment to make you more like his son. But because we are so tarnished and flawed and idolatrous and all those things, there's a fire that you go through in order to get the impurities out. But if you know him, those fires, they, they in his mercy, just drive you deeper into him where you say, God, <laughs> you just cling on. And you realise as a result of clinging on that you've got closer to him. Oh. And you realise, oh, that's how it works, okay. So there's the tribulation, it's in Jesus, okay? You're in Jesus, you get it. It's in him. There's the kingdom in Jesus. The kingdom is described in the Bible as the power, not kind of horrible use of power, but that ability to be able to do the spirit of might. I can do all things through Christ. I can win, I can get through. I can conquer. I can leave behind these futile ways I've inherited and growing up. I can leave the, the, the nonsense behind. Why? Because God's empowered me by his kingdom. The Bible says the kingdom is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Not petty things. Oh, are we allowed to eat this? Are we allowed to do that pork? No. It's about righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Yeah? It's, oh, oh yeah, okay. Not religious nitpicking and hair splitting. No. No. Learning to be fully human. Yeah, the kingdom. And patient endurance. Endurance means that you bear under. Which, in order to be able to bear under effectively, you must be under something that's threatening to collapse, make you collapse. Okay? So if you want to learn how to endure, there's going to be some weight that comes in your life, and you go, oh, and God says, okay, just bear under. Okay? <laughs> oh, and do it patiently. So it might go on, it might go on a little while, too, because it's patient endurance. It's, it's in Jesus. It's what he went through. And what it, all these things do, they begin to help you work out what do I really want? What do I really want? And, it, and it, you're, you're in the fire and you think, what do I really want? And it's in those moments where that deep work of the Spirit in you, which happens when you're born again, you find yourself going, do you know what? I, I wouldn't have chosen this, this and this experience and that, but do you know what I want? I want you. I want you. And that cry, Abba, Father. I want you. God's like, yeah, we're just, this is, this is great. It's not vindictive. It's not, it's just the, it's just the Father allowing, allowing it, our hearts by our nature just get gripped by so many other things. And they're not things that bring life. False worship, left, right and centre. So God's like, this is the way through. It's the cross. But it goes to just such glory. And such liberation. And it's not just for the next age. It's not just for the next age. It's ever increasing glory in this age. You come through it and you realise, that, that was a close one. God, but look what you've done. Yeah, look what you've done. Thank you, God. You have broken that grip of that thing which has gripped my family for ten generations. Yeah? Or that thing which has just been like a shadow, kind of, it feels like since my first memories, it's like, God, it's kind of the cloud's broken. And the sun's, what is that? And God's like, I know, I know what you need. <laughs> Trust me. My ways aren't like yours. They're higher, they're better. But, but it means you're constantly living in the mystery. But if you trust me, you will just know glory. More and more freedom from sin and dark powers. You will, you will, you will, you will, you will. I will, I will, we will, we will. Why? Because he's faithful. Amen? Amen. Amen.